Thank you, Martin, for your update, and thank you for your prayers. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be in partnership with ministries like EBTC and to see the work that God's doing in places like Germany and all over the world. And it's really great to be a part of a church that gets to hear updates like this and hear uh, what your prayers and contributions do in nations all around the world. So, Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, it's a privilege to be able to be able to preach this morning. Thank you to Pastor John and Pastor Tom for allowing me this opportunity. And for those of you that are visiting this morning for the Shepherds Conference, uh, I just want to say welcome. And I'm sorry that I'm probably the last sermon you're going to hear before you leave. So <laughs> it was all downhill after Friday. So. But. Anyway, it's good to be with you to open up God's Word. Would you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1. And the focus of our time this morning is going to be specifically in verses 27 through 30. And when asked to preach in a context like this, where you're sort of just coming in and you're going to just teach one message... Again, a great blessing. Sometimes it, it can be rather challenging to pick a text that would be helpful, that would be encouraging, but it would also sort of keep the momentum going of the things that we've uh, been studying from other pastors here. So I just really quickly want to tell you why it is that I decided to choose Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Uh, Pastor John Street has been going through a series on uh, critical race theory and has been really highlighting how that particular movement is so opposed to a biblical worldview, uh, the true worldview. Uh, Pastor Tom Patton has been going through the book of First Peter, which is a book all about suffering and endurance and obedience and hope in the midst of suffering. Our beloved Pastor John MacArthur has been going through Ephesians. He's been in Ephesians 4, and he's been calling us to unity. He's been calling us to walk in a worthy manner. And today we learned about the nature of the new self and what that looks like. And in God's providence, our Bible study has been going through the book of Philippians. Our Bible study meets first and third Fridays, 630 Granada Hills. There's my shameless pitch. <laughs> But we have been in Philippians chapter 1, and we just came through uh, Philippians 27 through 30. And in this particular passage, we see all of those themes that I've just talked about that have been covered by our pastors. We see opposition. We see calls to unity. Uh, we see calls to walk in a worthy manner. And in God's perfect timing, we had just been going through that passage in, in our Bible study. But additionally, in this particular passage in Philippians chapter 1, uh, many of you know um, the situation with our daughter, how she had two brain surgeries before she was the age of seven months old. In this particular passage, my wife Rachel and I found comfort. And we wanted to share that. I wanted to share that with you all this morning. So that's why I decided that we would be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So let's start by just reading the text. And it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Whenever you come to a particular passage in Scripture, it's important to establish the context in which it's in. In order for you to come to a right interpretation and understanding of the text, you have to know what's going on around it. So before we get into this particular passage, I think it's really important for us to establish that context for you to know what is going on. The book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written during his first Roman imprisonment. This is towards the end of his life. This is at the end of his missionary journeys. It's only going to be a few short years from this time that Paul is going to be beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ and his preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a church in the town of Philippi. Now, Philippi is a a town that had recently become part of the Roman Empire. It had only been a part of the Roman Empire for about 100 years up to this point. And as a result of Philippi becoming part of the Roman Empire, Rome filled the town with a bunch of veterans. So the town is, so to speak, very patriotic. They love their empire. They love their emperor. And as a result, they hate anything, anyone, any religion that would go against that. So they hate monotheism. They hate believe in God because they believe that Caesar is Lord. But even more so, they hate Christianity because Christianity says that Jesus Christ is Lord and Rome killed Christ. So they don't like Christ, and so they certainly do not like his followers. And so as a result, the Philippian church that Paul had established is becoming, they are being very much persecuted. It's not a pleasant place to be for Christians, and yet they are still striving for the advance of the gospel. They are not at all hindered by what is going on. We can read of their partnership with Paul in uh, chapter 1 in the middle of verse 7. Paul says that in both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of this grace with me. He says crystal clearly that they are partners in their defense and confirmation of the gospel, but they're also partners with him in in the persecution that would come from that. They are fellow partakers of imprisonment. And they are financially supporting Paul. They, they love Paul. This is their brother that established the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And so when they hear of his circumstances, that he's being put in prison, they want to help him. So they send him a gift. They send him finances and support through the means of a, a gentleman named Epaphroditus. If you look really quickly over to Philippians chapter 4, we can read of this. Philippians chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 15. It says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, 
No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So in response to the Philippian church sending this gift through Epaphroditus, Paul is now writing back to them, seeking to update him on, their, on his circumstances, but also seeking to encourage them. And to thank them for their partnership. And we can see these themes heading back over to chapter 1. In the first part of chapter 1, we see Paul's thanksgiving. We sort of read that just a little bit ago. How he's grateful for their partnership in the ministry. Beginning in verse 12, Paul then updates him on his circumstances. He says, even though I'm in prison, the gospel is advancing. And in this, I greatly rejoice. And then he provides sort of his outlook on everything that's happening to him. In verse 21, a very uh, familiar verse to us, it says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, the worst that they could possibly do to me is kill me. And that's fine because to die is gain. So he's thanking them. He's updating them on, their, on his circumstances, giving them his outlook on everything that's happening And now we get to our verse in verse 27. And this is really a pivotal point. This is really a transition. He now transitions from talking about his personal circumstances to addressing them directly. And as he addresses them, he addresses each and every one of us here this morning. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The beginning of this verse starts with the word only, which is very abrupt and it's very emphatic in the original language. It's as if all of a sudden Paul's talking about what's going on in his life and then he suddenly halts and says, but this is what I want to focus on. We can get to these other things about me later, but I want to focus on you. I want you to pay attention. I want you to pay attention to the way in which you're living your life. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? What does it mean to live in a worthy manner of the gospel? Well, it can't be just morality. It can't be just simply living a a good life in comparison to other people. Well, how do we know that? Because, brothers and sisters, you guys know that there are people in your life that live moral lives on the outside. They appear to be good. They are kind. They're gentle. and, And maybe they're charitable to various groups. But if they're not Christians, if they're not following Jesus Christ, then this is not living in a manner worthy of the gospel. So his focus is not simply... External morality, there has to be something more to that. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? It certainly doesn't mean that we earn it either. We can't earn the gospel. By works of the law, no man can be justified. So it's not like we're living our life in order to gain salvation. 
Now, what Paul is talking about here, and this is something that our pastor has demonstrated and said over and over in the last several months, he's talking about a life that's suitable to the gospel, a life that's fitting with the gospel. If you say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have put your faith and trust in him, that he is your Lord, you are his slave, then your life ought to look a particular way. That's what it means to live a life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So then from this point on, Paul then gives descriptions. He goes to describe what it is that the worthy life is. And that's going to be the focus of our time this morning. Looking at these descriptions of a worthy life. And it is my hope that these descriptions would challenge you. That they would encourage you. That you would examine your own life to figure out whether or not you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And there's six of them that I want to focus on. Six descriptions of a worthy life. And so we come to the very first one, and that is consistent. A worthy life, a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is, number one, consistent. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm. Paul here clearly says that their behavior should not be contingent upon whether or not he's around. He says, whether I'm there with you or not, my desire is to hear that you are living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It shouldn't be determined, their their life shouldn't be dependent upon who's there and who is not. Their life should be consistent. And that makes sense, right? Right? For the parents that are in the room, do you wish that your children simply obey and live in a worthy manner when you're around or even when you're not around? You don't say, you know what, I hope that you live obediently and God-honoring and faithful, but only when I'm here. When you go out in the hallway, live however you want. That doesn't make any sense at all. He wants them to live consistently whether he's there or not. So let me ask you a question. Do you live this way? When you leave here and you get in your car and you get with your family, are you going to act the same way in front of them that you are this morning? Do you act the same way in front of your boss that you do on Sunday mornings? When your friends see you, Do they see the same person that your wife sees? When your coworkers see you, is that the same person that your children see? Is that the same person that your pastors see? Are you living a life that's consistent, no matter who's there and who's not? But more importantly, this is is not about whether our spouse sees, our boss sees, our friends see, or our pastors see. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who sees all things and knows all things. And if we are striving to live a life that's consistent, we should strive to live a life that's consistent before him. Because if we're consistent before him, we'll be consistent before everyone. We serve an audience of one. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord 
are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Job 34.21 says that his eyes are on the way of man, and he sees all of his steps. God sees everything that you do, everything that you do. He, he hears everything that you say. Live a life that's consistent before him. And that will be a life that's consistent before all people. Listen, you can keep things from your parents. You can keep things from your boyfriend and girlfriend. You can keep things from your friends, your boss. But you can't keep things away from God. You can't hide things from him. A life of worthy conduct is consistent no matter the time or the place or no matter who's present. This is what Paul is... This is what Paul's desire is for the Philippians. So first and foremost, a worthy life is consistent. Secondly, a life that is uh, of worthy conduct, a life that is worthy of the gospel is unified. It is unified. He says, so whether that I come or see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire for the Philippian church is that they would be unified, that they would be together, that they would be of one mind and one spirit. And this isn't like a superficial unity. It's not like they're joining the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and whatever. This is, this is a unity that's for the faith of the gospel. This is a unity that only Christians can partake in. This is a special unity. And this was our Lord's desire in the garden on the night that he was betrayed He prays in the garden that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. That was our Lord's desire, and that's Paul's desire as well. And Jesus says that his prayer was that we would be one so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. So, Satan would love nothing more than to divide us. If we say that we are of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, then it would be in Satan's best interest to divide us because then that calls into question everything that we claim to be true. So Paul says that they need to stand firm in one spirit and one mind. Now, this word here for spirit, I believe he's referring to the Holy Spirit here. Briefly, here's why I believe that. It's the word pneuma in Greek, which is where we get the word pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. If you look down in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, there you can see in the NASB, the translators have capitalized that, um, identifying that they believe that this is the Holy Spirit. This is the exact same Greek word that's in chapter 2, verse 1. And then if you see in chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. This is a different Greek word. So Paul has made a a distinction between these two. And then additionally, um, a parallel passage to this would be in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says... Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just also that you have been called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So I believe that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit here in this particular passage. 
So what does that mean? How can we stand firm in the Holy Spirit? Well, just a really brief and broad synopsis of this. It's essentially a commitment to the truth that binds us together and a commitment to one another. We are all committed to the truth that has brought us into the family of God. We are committed to the truths of the gospel and we are committed to serve and love one another. Our Lord says that if if you love me, then you will love one another. So that's what it means to be standing firm in one spirit. He says that we need to be of one mind, with one mind striving together. This word for mind is the word suke, which is where we get the word psychology, the study of the mind, supposedly. But this word really encompasses more than just the mind. It's really the mind, the heart, and the will. It's really everything about you internally that makes you you. It's the way that you think, it's the way that you feel, and and the way that you act. So he's basically telling the church in Philippi, I want you all to have shared faculties. I, I want you all to share the same mind. I want you to have the same passions. I want you to have the same drive. And what is that? It's for the faith of the gospel. Again, this is not just a superficial unity. To use an illustration of a sports team, a basketball team, let's say. You have five players on a basketball team, all of which are various sizes and different talents and abilities. And if all of those players aren't of the same mind, then there's no way they could win the game. If you've got one guy there that's just trying to make the coach proud, you've got another guy there that wants to make mama proud, you've got another guy there that just doesn't want to lose his scholarship, so that's why he's playing, their eyes are on different goals. And so therefore they could never work together, and therefore they could never win. But a team that is focused on the same purpose, that is to win the game, They will study together to win the game. They will practice together in order to win the game. And they will play hard together in order to win the game. That's sort of like what Paul is telling the Philippian church that they need to be doing. That's what he's telling us that we need to be doing. But we're not playing to win a game. Paul says that we strive for an imperishable wreath. We're striving for the faith of the gospel. Something far more better than... Any basketball team can win. So as Christians, we need to be unified. In order to live a a manner worthy of the gospel, we need to come together. This is why we're not isolationists. This is why our church made the stance that it did in the past two years. We must be together. This is vital for our Christian life. This is vital for us to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. How could we ever be unified in spirit and mind, heart, and will, if we're not together. We must be together. There are some that would say, I don't need the church. I just need a personal relationship with Christ. Well, if that's your attitude, you can never live a life worthy of the gospel. You need the church. We need each other. We need to encourage one another. We need to build one another up. We need to serve one another. Sometimes we need to correct one another. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need to be unified. So, a life of worthy conduct is consistent, it is unified, and thirdly, it's opposed. It's opposed. He says in verse 28, 
in no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't be shocked by your opponents. This word means frightened, alarmed, intimidated, surprised. You shouldn't be alarmed that you have opponents, Philippian church. Why? Why shouldn't they be frightened and alarmed by this? Well, to be frightened or to be intimidated would be antithetical to our hope, right? It would be antithetical to to Paul's hope. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. If Paul was frightened and intimidated by his opposition, that would, be, that would fly in the face of what he's just said. To live as Christ and die as gain. The worst that people could do is send us to heaven. Great. <laughs> so we shouldn't be frightened by opposition. But not only that, not only is it antithetical to the hope that lies within us, but friends... We are told over and over and over again in Scripture that opposition will come. Persecution will come. Uh, Really briefly, I'll, I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 15. This is the night that Jesus... This is the night that He is to be betrayed. This is moments before His death. He says to His disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. Our Lord told the disciples the night before, persecution will come. Why? Because they hate me, so of course they're going to hate any of my followers. A slave is not greater than his master. If our master was persecuted, then we must expect persecution is coming our way as well. And this is so kind of the Lord to reveal to us. It's so kind that Paul would say, don't be alarmed by opposition. Why? Because it helps us to anticipate it when it comes. To use an illustration, some of you know prior to coming to seminary, I was a police officer. And part of our training to become a police officer is that we would get pepper sprayed. And during that training, what you do is you go through a class and they talk to you about how to use it, what not to do, and what situations you should and shouldn't use it in. And to be honest with you, it's really hard to pay attention because leading up to that, everybody knows that they're about to get sprayed. So that's what everybody's thinking about. And I remember at that time for me, my instructor said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to line you up against the wall. You're going to stand there. You're going to keep your eyes closed. I'm going to spray you right above your eyebrows here. I want you to open your eyes and I want you to blink. And then you're going to walk over to this course and you're going to do this. And then you're going to go over here and you're going to give this person commands. Then you're going to walk over to stage three. By the time you get to stage three, you are not going to be able to open your eyes. And it's going to be excruciating. I want you to know this ahead of time so that when it happens, you don't freak out. And that's exactly what happened. Caught to stage three, I could not open my eyes. But I'm grateful that that instructor had told me because had I got to that particular point, 
I'd been thinking, something's wrong with my eyes, I'm going blind, and I would have freaked out. It's grateful, I'm grateful to the Lord that he reveals to us that opposition is coming. Opposition is here. So we, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised by the things like critical race theory. We shouldn't be surprised that there's worldviews out there that hate our Lord and hate the truths that we declare. Now, we also have to remember that opposition will come, but let's make sure that opposition comes as a result of righteous behavior. Don't act immorally and don't be offensive intentionally so that people oppose you. And then you say, well, this is just the manner of the worthy walk. First Peter chapter four, verses 15 through 16. Uh, this is a passage that Tom will be preaching on in the months to come. It says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in the same manner. A description of a life that is living in a worthy manner of the gospel is that you will be opposed. Fourth, a life that is of worthy conduct is assured. It is assured. This is a great section in verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Paul says here, living in a manner worthy of the gospel is going to bring persecution. It's going to bring enemies from the outside world to attack you. But don't fret because that's a sign that you are on the right side of the fight. That's a sign of salvation to you. It's a sign that you are on God's team. 1 Peter 4, again, verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you are opposed for the sake of being a Christian, it's because you have the seal of the Holy Spirit on you. And they hate that. But be assured that that's a sign of your salvation. What a great blessing. But it's also a sign of destruction for the enemy. Don't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them. Again, as I said, we shouldn't be surprised by things like critical race theory that would come up. We shouldn't be surprised about the LGBTQ movement and the laws that they're trying to pass in order to silence the church and to shut down the church. We shouldn't be alarmed by those things and frightened and scared and intimidated. We should pity those people. We should pray for those people that are lost and stuck in that movement. Why? Because that's a sign of their destruction. That's a sign that if they do not repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ, they will burn an eternity in hell. That should, that should strike you in the heart to pity them, not to be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of opposition. Be assured that that opposition means your salvation. Be assured that it means that you're on the right side of the fight. A life of worthy conduct is consistent. It's unified. It's opposed. 
it's assured. And fifth, it's afflicted. It's afflicted. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is appointed by God for you to suffer for his sake. Worthy life is afflicted. Now, in this particular context, we have to acknowledge that that Paul is talking about persecution. But the word for suffer is applied all over the New Testament to various things. To suffer pain, to suffer heartache, to suffer illness, to suffer persecution. And he says, to you it has been granted to suffer. This is really a theology of suffering. It's a recognition that God is behind it. We know Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. God is not the author of meaningless suffering. Suffering will come. Ecclesiastes 3 clearly teaches that. Suffering will come. And here, Paul tells us that suffering is a grace of God. He says, to you it has been granted. It has been granted. The root of this word is uh, similar to the root charis, which is the word for grace. It's a gift It has been given by God. When Rachel and I were in the hospital with Abigail, and it was the Sunday that she stopped breathing and they put her on a ventilator, and I was reading this passage, and I said to Rachel, have you ever thought of your suffering as a gift from God? Have you ever thought of it That God specifically orchestrated this for us? That's clearly what the text says. That suffering is granted. But it's not purposeless. It's for Christ's sake. It's been granted for Christ's sake. Again, God is not the author of meaningless suffering. So the things that you're going through in your life right now, heartaches, pains, illnesses, suffering... Opposition in the family, opposition in the workplace, persecution. Brothers and sisters in Ukraine facing what they're facing. God has a purpose in it. It's not meaningless. And it's for Christ's sake. How is it for Christ's sake? Because it's an opportunity for us to put our faith in Christ on display. We get to show a watching world that our hope does not lie in our worldly circumstances. Our hope doesn't lie within the things that we have. It doesn't lie within perfect health. It doesn't lie within perfect relationships. Our hope rests in Jesus Christ alone. And he gets to put you front and center into a watching world for you to declare that. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What a tremendous privilege that is. The purpose of suffering is to magnify God. It's for Christ's sake, and that is a tremendous gift. 
So use your suffering to magnify Christ. Use your suffering to glorify him and show the watching world that he's the one that you have your hope in. A life of worthy conduct is consistent, unified, opposed, assured, afflicted. And last, it's modeled. It's modeled. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In this particular verse, Paul is telling the Philippian church, You're going through what I'm going through. You're not alone. We're in this together. You're experiencing the same things that you saw to be in me. You saw how the people in Philippi persecuted me and tried to kill me and kick me out of town. And now you're hearing about it, how I'm in a prison in Rome Brothers and sisters, you're experiencing the same thing that I'm experiencing. Be encouraged. You're not alone. We're in this together. Be encouraged. I have a good outlook that to live as Christ and die is gain. You can do that too. You're experiencing the same things that I'm experiencing. We follow a long line of godly men and women, brothers and sisters, who were consistent in their life, that were unified that were opposed, but had great assurance of their salvation, that were harshly afflicted. Read Fox's Books of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you will read person after person after person after person after person that lived this way. A life that is lived in a worthy manner is modeled after people like this. It's modeled after people like Paul. On a small scale, it's modeled after them. But more importantly, it's modeled after Jesus Christ. Christ was consistent. He never sinned. No matter who was around, no matter what time of day it was, he never sinned. He lived perfectly in obedience to the will of God. And he was unified. He says, I only do what the Father has sent me to do. I only say the things that he tells me to say. He says, if we abide in him, he abides in us. He is unified with the Father and he's unified with his people. And he was harshly opposed. And he wasn't opposed for the things that he did. He was opposed for the things that he said. The truth. He spoke the truth and nothing but the truth. And the world hated him and opposed him. And he was assured... He knew that it wasn't purposeless. It says, for the joy that set before him, he endured the cross. And he was harshly afflicted with many sufferings in this life. He endured the full brunt of Satan's temptation, yet without sin. And he endured the cross. We model our life after him. We follow his example. He's the ultimate example that we model our life after. A life of worthy conduct is modeled after Jesus Christ. Is this you? As we examine these descriptions of a worthy life, 
Have you been living consistently? Have you been striving to be unified with the church? Are you avoiding opposition? Just trying to do everything that you can to get the world to like you. Are you assured of your salvation? Are you avoiding hardships and trials and affliction in this life? Brothers and sisters, Jesus says that if any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Follow my example. Whoever would wish to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Is this you? If not, you must repent of your sin. You must turn to Christ. You must come unto him. And he will give you a new heart and a new spirit that rejoices in these things, not fearful of these things. And you will have everlasting joy and assurance of glory beyond this life. The cares and concerns of this life will fade away if you would follow after him. May we all live worthy lives. How can we have these things? How, how can I get more of this in my life? Well... Come to our Bible study and we'll talk about it. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to be in your word each and every Sunday here at this church. And we're grateful for the truths that you teach us. We're grateful for the conviction that you bring. Lord, everyone in this room, myself included, and We need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we have all come to this passage and realized that there are things that we must improve upon. And Lord, we ask that you would do that. We cannot do this apart from your work. This passage, this book says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would complete that work that you've started within us. Be with us as we go from this place. Keep us safe in our travels home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.